it's actually something we started to talk about um, on that failed uh, recording, um, which is that the uh, where it's come from is as I've been working on this packages page update for Swift.org, it's made me think a lot about how we pick and recommend and discuss uh, packages. And there was a, there was a bit in that. Um, in that failed recording where we talked about a package and I ended up t- talking myself out of recommending it, <laughs> recommending it halfway through. <laughs> and Well, you talked yourself you were a little out disappointed. of it. You, you immediately said you shouldn't be using it. I mean, <laughs> you, you, you didn't give yourself much of a chance, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Um, and afterwards, we were discussing the failed episode and you said it was a bit of a shame that that got lost because... Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Because it is actually an interesting thing. Like, there's value in talking about things that you wouldn't automatically... Like, a recommendation is a funny thing, because a recommendation, it almost makes no sense, because what might fit my use case might not fit your use case, and it might not not fit everybody's use case. But there will be some people who find something in everything, right? So um, recommendations are a little uh, odd in that way. But also there's there's value, I think, in talking about things that you wouldn't necessarily use. And and there's still value in that. And and it's it's something I've been thinking about, uh, like I say, over the last uh, few weeks as I've been putting the final touches on the packages page and that process uh, that we're going to put in of people suggesting packages to recommend and, uh, and then... Uh, having a kind of editorial process of picking some packages to feature on Swift.org temporarily, and that they shouldn't be pitched as like these are the best packages ever. It's just yeah. here is some here are some packages. They may do interesting things. They may do interesting things and not be for you. They may, you know, they may be something that you can learn something from or get inspiration from or there's many many reasons to look at a package yeah absolutely yeah yeah i agree and and you can learn something from having a package discussed that is clearly not your use case but still it's well valuable in knowing that's just not right for me it's too big for me it doesn't do it quite the way i I would need it it's you know it's too complex because of the yeah trade-offs it makes you know lots of things are just trade-offs right there's a there isn't the perfect package because the perfect package would is effectively almost, you know, often something you would have to write yourself because that's the only way to guarantee it's actually tailored to your requirements. I mean, can, can I can I suggest foundation? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But is is that is it a package in the sense that I mean, obviously, at, at some point it'll be a package in the. Um, although actually, that's that's a great point because many people will argue foundation isn't a good choice for what they're doing. You know, they might be on resource constrained devices. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, many Linux folks say, "Well, I I don't want to pull foundation in because it makes my my binary bigger. Yeah. Uh, compile times are bigger. Um, uh, that sort of thing. Well, compile times isn't uh, isn't going to to be an issue if it's if it's a library like that. But once it's a package, that that'll. Uh, have an effect. Um, although I think um, on Linux, it is even part of it. Swift Core Foundation is is a is is binary. I'm I'm right. not one hundred percent sure. Um, but you know, either way, you'll 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 blow to your binary. You you have more complexity if you pull in a dependency like that. And and in other cases, it's it's the of course you're going to import Foundation because when you're building an app, 
there's so much you need. You've, you know, you'll eventually codable all that stuff. You you need foundation. That's almost unavoidable. So, but but it is a trade-off. You know, not every environment is the same. Not every system is the same. Um, for some people, it's a natural thing to pull in. For others, it's it's the last thing they want to touch. Yeah, it's a it's a complicated subject to talk about because you don't want to you don't want to or certainly I don't want to ever upset anyone if I talk about somebody's open source work here and end up even implicitly like saying well I wouldn't use it um then then I I don't want to upset anyone that, and that has the potential to upset someone but but I think that, that that discussion is really valuable maybe we should just not call them recommendations because that implies some degree of of experience or testing or usage of a package that you're saying well i've i've used this and i therefore recommend it um which is certainly not what i do when we look through these packages i i skim the packages i look at the ones that look interesting and then we talk about them yeah my process is a bit different but i think there's that's also valuable that we don't do it the same way because that leads us to pick different packages for different reasons are you, are you saying you test every package you recommend? I actually do, yes. <laughs> it just <laughs> just today, my pick today, I, I tried it, I found a bug, I reported it, it's already been fixed, there's a new release. <laughs> but, but I feel like, um, I mean, that isn't always the case, but most of the time it's, I pick packages that I'm really curious about and, and that curiosity is, part of that curiosity is trying it out. And that's why I often mention that stuff works in, trying a playground because that's why that's how I try it that's right. the easiest way mm -hmm. to try it and that's a huge that's a huge help in trying them but today's package that didn't work and I created a little package which actually I realized I do in a complicated way so what I normally do is create a directory in terminal the swift package init type executable type library actually today I just did an Xcode project new package, it's so much easier. It, it sets everything up that I had to fiddle around with and it's immediately there in Xcode. I, I, sometimes you have these trodden paths, you, you keep going down and you never right. reevaluate what you're actually doing. But yes, I, I often do try it because I, I'm interested in, in those aspects of it. How does it actually work? Um, and that's later on, I'll, uh, that's actually a, a big part of what I want to highlight in that package. How does that actually work? I was really curious about that. Um, and that's often the case, not always, but often I, I want to see how it actually works in practice. Well, well, now you're making me f me look feel terrible and look like an amateur, well, which is exactly why I brought it up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm now. I'm not saying. Although I did notice that halfway through your thing, there you said at the beginning, you said I test all packages, and then halfway through it switched to often. So, yeah, you know, I'm, 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 how. how <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I'm not saying that I don't test any packages, but it's certainly. In fact, I can I can give you a little preview. None of my packages that I'm going to talk about today, I've I haven't tested any of them. <laughs> Shame on you. <laughs> Shame on me, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> well, I think the ones that I don't test explicitly are often ones I have used in the past. I, I'd have to check. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's been one or the other where um, I picked it for other reasons and well, I didn't actually run it, but... You get you get a gold star, then I will get one printed and sent oh, to you. Oh, excellent, excellent. What material is it going to be? Is it like valuable metal or something? <laughs> is it? 
an Apple-like trophy. Oh, Apple-like. Yeah, okay. We'll give you one of those little pens that Apple uh, Little. There we have it. Little. Little is, is the value of my work. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I think that's that's interesting, though. I think that's definitely an interesting discussion to have about what's, what would be alternative um, labels for instead of recommendations, highlights, um, yeah, we've been talking about this with the uh, with that pull request, and um, the word that we've settled on there, uh, which I quite like, is showcase. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, it's a show. Yeah, that's good. I think that's really good because that implies it doesn't yeah. have to be ready. A showcase is often a prototype or a proof of concept yeah. or just something <laughs> interesting. I think that's good. Yeah, it can be a preview. It can be yeah. It's it's like here is a selection of things that might be interesting. Yeah. No, I, I like that. Yeah, I, I hadn't actually, didn't remember what the the final version actually was. Yeah, and um, we've also been talking this week about a blog post, right? Yes, we have, and that's a really interesting blog post that we came across. It's called "Worrying About the NPM Ecosystem," and it's a blog post by Sam Blackley. Um, it's actually quite well old in internet terms. So this is three years old from June twenty ninth, twenty twenty. Uh, and this is really interesting uh, for us in particular, working on um, the Swift ecosystem uh, and creating a package index on the ecosystem. Because what Sam has done is analyze the NPM ecosystem through the lens of of um, what packages there are, you know, statistics of the package index. And that's really interesting. I mean, obviously, there are many things that are different between NPM and Swift, um, size being probably the most, most uh, critical part of it. Um, well, it, it did strike me, actually, as uh, it did strike me as I was reading through it uh, again before today's um, uh, recording. Um, one of the, well, so first of all, actually, I think it's it's really nice to see somebody step back and look at a package ecosystem like this for the long term and we've got lots of history to look back on you know this is the swift package ecosystem is is obviously something that we're very both very uh intimately connected with and passionate about but there have been a great many package ecosystems to learn from uh npm being one of course but even back before then you know cpan and uh, lots and lots of uh, package ecosystems and it's really nice to see somebody taking a long-term look at like well what are the problems how how is the reality of this ecosystem compared to an expectation um yeah and it did strike me as i was rereading it that maybe we should uh, put a limit on the number of packages in the package ecosystem. So, you know, once that last, once that 50,000th package is in, that's it, we're full. Yeah, some <laughs> old ones need to go. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, something, you know, it's not, it's not that that's, it can never change. And I'm not really being serious about this, but, but there is actually, there is actually an interesting point to be at least considered of like, is there a point where a package ecosystem, once it goes over a certain point, these problems are unavoidable? I I think so to some degree, but also there's inevitably a layer of craft that'll accumulate over time. I mean, we see this already, yeah. right? There are packages that are effectively unmaintained and have been unmaintained for years and years and years. They probably don't even compile on any on any of the versions that we test, you know, they stopped with Swift 4.2 or something like that. I'm sure there are some mm -hmm. um, that we just ended up with. And, you know, there's 
there's no process by which we would go through and drop them. So we'll carry them forward probably forever. I mean, unless we decide at some point, right, this, this isn't passing any, any compatibility checks, never has or hasn't in the last X years. Is that a reason to drop it? I don't know. Is it? Who's, what's, and what's the I, it's, a, it's a good question that I don't really have a good answer for. But also, we're in a, actually a much better position than we really should be because there was a point, and I can't remember which Swift, Swift version it was, there was a point where we just had to say that anything, I think it was anything three and below, just had to go. Like, even though there was package manager support for those, it, they were so old and it just didn't work anymore. So we we kind of had a reset at around Swift 4, I think. I believe package dump failed to work on very old packages, yes, or something like that. And package dump really is yeah. central to how we gather the very basic um, metadata for a package. So if that fails, it's there's really very little to glean from a package. Yeah, that might have been, might yeah. have been the reason. Yeah. And so we had that reset. And you're right that there are definitely packages in there that are so old that they don't compile on any of the versions that we test with and will probably never be updated again. Yeah, yeah. and and what's what's to happen with them? And um, you can imagine NPM has ha, is going to have a lot of that. Um, I mean, how old is NPM? Like the tens of thousands. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, oh, NPM is is. I don't know, 10, 15 years yeah. old. I mean, so in in many regards, it's a glimpse of the the future of the Swift package ecosystem to some degree. I'm not sure size-wise it's ever going to approach anything like it. We should mention, like in the blog post, uh, Sam lists uh, 1.3 million packages in the NPM ecosystem, which is obviously uh, more than two orders of magnitude, more than we track right now, which is six thousand packages and and a few um which i guess we're also not tracking all of them i mean clearly we're not because those are just the open source ones which is also true for npm but we, we also um are you know probably much less established as the source where everyone goes to register the new packages are, you know that, that's probably more true right. f- for npm than it is for the swift package index um so that's certainly a difference i mean the size is just I mean, imagine two orders of magnitude, what that changes. Um, And there are some other interesting aspects that he lists that he looked at that I found really quite surprising. So he looked at a um, a thing, circular dependencies of packages, and that is something I did not really expect. So there are 1,700 packages that are directly dependent on themselves. Yes. Which I can't quite grasp how that works. There's the- well, he he even says in his uh in his post, uh he says, um yeah, they depend directly on themselves, either perfectly circularly or a different version of the same package. I have no explanation for that. I, I can't so the, the other example <laughs> I can understand is like two thousand five hundred packages depend on themselves via two steps. And he gives an example that is yes. that is quite well, it's still strange, but at least it makes a little more sense how it could happen. There's Babel Core that depends on Babel Register, and that again depends on Babel Core. Um, but given that they're all, you know, related to Babel, you'd think, I mean, how would you build a dependency tree where where that can actually happen? I've, I find that really strange. I wonder if there's something particular about NPM that makes that possible. I'm 
the written. So we should say that the, the blog post is also interesting for us because um, we want to do some of the same analysis for the Swift ecosystem soon. We're not in a position right now to do it because we're not actually gathering all the underlying information yet that we would be able to make that same analysis. But I'm really curious if that can actually happen. Um, I think part of this is is actually a little bit specific to JavaScript, the language. We talked about foundation earlier, and JavaScript is a very, very lightweight language and doesn't have anything like foundation. And so yeah. part of the reason there are 1.3 million packages is that 100 people have all tried to solve all the basic problems and they've all put a package out for all the basic problems and yes and and those packages get deeply deeply ingrained in those dependency graphs and i think that's a lot of these circular references are caused at least in part by that problem yeah that's actually in, in one of my first notes about what are potential lessons no, how it's sorry different. for, uh, for <laughs> no, sniping you. <laughs> I think that's that's really it because a lot of the analysis that Sam is doing is is you know highlighting his surprise at how many how deep the dependency trees are and how how wide they are so how many dependencies get pulled in there's there's um many packages that have 250 dependencies and no, actually, two thousand five hundred dependencies is the maximum, and and I think uh, two thousand five hundred dependencies. Two thousand five hundred, oh yes, my. yeah. Sorry, I was I was quoting from crates from Rust uh, comparison. So there's there's very very um, very very deep dependency trees, and I thought about how or why that is, and I think you're exactly right. That's that's why I, what I thought as well. A strong and good standard library probably trims that tree by a lot because it it literally you know prunes the tree of all these packages that other ecosystems don't need and i think the other one is ui libraries that are practically always os libraries that aren't part of the swift ecosystem per se like like we're not tracking swift ui as a package that has sub dependencies or anything like it UIKit equally, that that's all platform libraries, which NPM really doesn't have, right? Any any web framework, and, and there are lots of them, needs to ship all this as a dependency, right? That you then yeah. pull in and use. I think an area where you see the same issue is web development. And, and we are actually, the, that's interesting, the SPI server package is the package with the most dependencies, and it's 56. Uh, and that's mostly um, Vapor and Friends because that's a very rich framework with lots of uh, dependencies. Mm -hmm. um, Vapor has everything nicely broken down into uh, individual things. And like if you if you use a database, you by nature use um, the foundation of Postgres library. Then um, I think there's even a separate one for the Neo stuff. And then there's a Fluent layer. And I think so I have at least three maybe for database libraries that you pull in when you use Postgres as the database in Vapor. And, and that is the case for quite a number of other packages. I should also add in our defense, those 56 includes dev dependencies. So <laughs> it's, it's, not, <laughs> it's not entirely that, uh, that bad in the, in the shipping binary. But I think we are sort of an example 
of a more typical npm package in that sense uh, in that uh, a lot of stuff isn't os library stuff i mean i don't think i'm not even sure the post i think the postgres stuff might need libraries i need to check what we actually need in our docker image but a lot of the stuff we build to run is is very foundational in the sense there's very little that the os actually provides as underlying libraries that that get used a lot of is is just straight up code that that is built on purpose um to to provide the functionality itself um what what i also found interesting and i'm not sure if you followed that link uh, there was a follow-up post where sam looks at the same analysis for rust uh, and that was quite interesting did, did you see that one as well as i skimmed that one but i didn't read it in full full depth yeah, it's a bit interesting and peculiar for our case because it's sort of in between. So Rust at the time, this was July 2020, had 50,000 packages. So we're just an order of magnitude away now from us. Yeah. Um, it also includes cycles, dependency cycles. So that might indicate that it's just something that happens. This is a look. This is the ghost of Christmas future. <laughs> yeah, uh, and and a lot fewer dependencies. And I think that's. That is to our point that um, a strong standard library probably prunes that tree quite a bit. Um, and and he mentioned that, Sam, that it's very likely due to a few very popular packages with few dependencies that early on caught on and, and sort of were crystallization points for all the work. And, and I think Swift is a good position, like especially with many of the... Um, packages in, in backend development and Swift server group, SSWG packages, Swift Neo, for instance, is taking care of a lot of the um, plumbing in, in terms of networking, where Swift is benefits from having packages in lots of areas, but not multiple different implementations. So there's typically one good library that does it and all the effort to maintain it is focused on that one library and then it gets used a lot and and uh, battle tested and sort of often they, they have good dependency trees in, in the sense that there are few dependencies that they themselves have or it's the same ones again and again so i think all of this helps a bit in in keeping the this growth in check um but you know, obviously that it's going to be interesting to see if that changes and how that changes as the index the ecosystem grows it will certainly be something we have to keep uh, an eye on um while you were just talking then i uh i i had a suspicion and i i just double checked it um that so we have actually two dependency trees in spi server um as you say our swift dependency tree is quite large because of Vapor and the database uh, dependencies that we bring in through that. Um, oh, right. We also have a JavaScript. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we also have a JavaScript uh, dependency tree because we have a front end process and that has its own build process. And we use um, we use the standard uh, um, J JavaScript dependency manager that we've been talking about today. Um, and I did pick our dependencies very carefully with the, the front end, uh, and I've just double checked. We have three um, top level uh, dependencies, and those dependencies have zero second level dependencies. Oh, nice. I was, I was just sort of bracing myself <clears throat> so, for, a, for a big number there. 
<laughs> no, so it's actually we're, we're the we're the the opposite. Uh, we're living in opposite world. Yeah. Wow. Um, we do have. So I should just mention we do have a uh, a much bigger uh, resolved file because um, in production we only have three dependencies, but our build environment gets into that whole messy uh, npm tree. Uh, so we have some development dependencies and we have some production event dependencies uh, and our development dependencies are much messier than our production right, ones. Right. Yeah, I need to check. I, I'm actually curious how many Swift production dependencies we actually have. Um, I mean, it's not going to be a lot because in, I mean, we have snapshot testing and that sort of stuff, but there aren't, I can't think of a lot of um, specific uh, test dependencies that we're pulling in. Sure. Mm -hmm. Well, that's an that's a interesting look at the ecosystem. I would thoroughly recommend, uh, obviously we'll put it in the show notes, but I would thoroughly recommend reading uh, this blog post if you have even the slightest interest in what we've been talking about, because it's fascinating. Well written. It'll make you laugh a couple of times. It's a great blog yeah. post. Yeah, really good. And I'm curious. So we'll definitely endeavor to produce the same um, numbers, same statistics for Swift Package Index. We, we're just not in a position to do that yet because we're not tracking yeah. the full dependency trees, but it is coming. Well, I think it's also good that we're thinking about this while the package ecosystem is this size. Yeah. yeah. Because I think one of the ways that you stop it happening is by showing, showing it happen. <laughs> well, the question is, can you really? I mean, how... Like we were saying earlier, I mean, I, I, I do believe there probably is a size at which this becomes yeah. inevitable. Um, but but certainly there are things, you know, I think I think we're in we're in pretty good shape to delay that inevitability uh, at least a little bit. Let's see how it goes. So should we should we showcase some packages? <laughs> Let's showcase some packages. <laughs> Uh, you can uh, you can kick us off this All week. All right, I'll kick us off. So my first package is actually two packages in a trench coat, <laughs> <laughs> and um, I do suspect they one of them might appear. In, they depend on each other, uh, right? <laughs> actually, they do, <laughs> but it's unidirectional. Um, I suspect they might also be in iOS Dev Weekly um, later this week, but I'm I'm calling first dibs, um, and it's from our from our good friends Point Free. Uh, it's Swift macro testing and Swift snap snapshot testing. Um, disclaimer, Point Freeco are a sponsor of the Swift Package Index, but um, I, I just can't resist. I'll, I'll always recommend them. They're good packages, Brunt. <laughs> I, I saw both of these in, in the RSS feeds, and as soon as I saw them, I just skipped over them because I knew you'd pick them. <laughs> <laughs> you left them for me, nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're they're really they're really great. What I love about them is that they are useful, but also useful in interesting new ways, um, and they really build on top of each other. So, um, right, let me explain what they do. So, um, the first one, Swift macro testing, is about macros, which is a new feature in Swift five nine, um, and Swift five nine obviously comes with. Um, the ability to implement macros, it also has some facilities to actually test your implementation. And what it does effectively is it adds a an assert, assert macro exp uh, expansion, and then you can inline, you know, have a literal string that is your expectation of what it should look like and the macro definition itself. And then it compares that the um, macro expands into what you wanted it to expand to. Um, and 
the package, uh, Swift macro testing package expands on that, um, no pun intended, <laughs> <laughs> by giving you more capabilities because the assert macro expansion test, while nice, is is fairly basic. So it only allows you to compare the strings and you sort of have to manage that yourself. What this, their uh, assert does is it actually puts the expanded expectation into your source code in line. So you don't need to prepare something and then copy paste it in. You you write an assert with the macro definition in it, as you call it. Then you run the test. You know, if, if you know how snapshot tests work, you normally run the test and then it writes out a file. And then you confirm, yeah, the file looks like, like you know, as I expect. And then when you run, run it the next time and the file is there, it, it just compares the next snapshot against the file. Right. What it does here is it it is not file-based, but it actually places the expansion into your source code in Xcode and it uses Swift syntax under the hood to understand your test structure and does effectively a live live source edit of Xcode. So it, it as if you were typing out the expectation itself. So that's quite nice because you don't need to fiddle with the expectation. And obviously once you've done it the first time, it'll then, if it's different, it'll highlight a difference, right? It only does that if there's nothing there yet. Um, so this is your first capture of the of the difference. And it goes beyond that because it doesn't just um, snapshot your expansion, it also snapshots diagnostics and fixits, which is something that the built-in cert macro expansion doesn't do. So this is only for testing the expansion itself and Point Free Co's tool also allows you to test all the um, edge cases, you know, like diagnostics when there's something wrong mm -hmm. with your macro call or fix it when, you know, you want to test what your suggestions are, how to fix issues with the macros. So that's quite nice. And this... So I think, um, I, I think I, 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 cause I, I, I did see the macro, uh, package fly pass, but I didn't look into it in much detail yet. Uh, like I say, I, I, I knew you would, <laughs> uh, I knew you would take it. Um, but what I did see was, I think what you're about to talk about, which is the other side of this, which is an enhancement to swift snapshot testing, yeah. which added support for inline testing this week. Yeah. And even now I understand why <laughs> they added that, yeah. but it, that feature even on its own is invaluable. We have, we use snapshot testing in uh, a couple of different ways. We have HTML snapshot testing, which takes fully rendered HTML files of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of lines of, of, of HTML and snapshots those. And those obviously suit file-based snapshot testing really well. But then we also have a whole load of other uses of snapshot testing, like we snapshot test some SQL queries and we snapshot test even just a bit of like JSON, like a fragment of JSON somewhere, yeah. or even just a string, like we, you know, we render a date or something, maybe we'll just snapshot test that. And currently all those live also on disk, which is, it's okay, it's not terrible, but I really liked the idea of being able to have those snapshots just in line in the, yeah. uh, in the code. And, and now finding out that they will automatically update if you, if you ask them to, that's that's just the um, icing on the cake. Yeah, that's really nice because you know it's it's you always have to sort of make the decision. I mean, it still doesn't make sense to do an inline snapshot for for hundreds of lines of output. You know, that's clearly something you want to stick in a file. Of course, but many smaller ones 
are just really nice to have in line because you don't need to go hunting through the file system to actually look at the snippet, right? It's it's really nice if a three-liner, four-liner is actually in line there in the test. And, and that's the that's this amazing new feature of the inline testing. Not not only that you can have it in there, but it actually automatically manages that representation in line and you you just effectively you just yeah. you know look at it. Yeah, it looks looks all right and run it. And then if it fails, it's it gives you the same message as if it was a file. Uh, and obviously also you you can always see the diff in in your source um uh, your source tree, you know, if even if you were to save it or that's great. It sounds like yeah. a real um, a real uh, enhancement to, to, to the uh, Snapchat yeah. testing library. Really great couple of packages um, and, and really nice um, combined um, yeah, release of, of those. So my first um, completely untested and unexperimented with package <laughs> is, um, <laughs> is, I mean, so okay, so so it's it, the package is Cloud's CloudKit Sync Monitor. So in order for me to have tested this, I would have had to set up a CloudKit project, <laughs> and you know, there's a lot of testing in that. Um, it's by Grant Gruninger, uh, and it monitors the state of an NS persistent CloudKit container synchronization process. So um, I think this, if if it does what it says on the tin, which I'm sure it does. Um, I think this is a potential a package that potentially every CloudKit application should include because one thing, one area where CloudKit is a little weak, certainly in the operating system and and in also in applications that use it, is feedback on what's happening with CloudKit Sync. Yeah. Um, has it finished? Is it still going on? What's happening? Did it error? Um, and this allows you to hook into all of the notifications sent out by the persistent CloudKit container um, and translate them into some published properties that you can then monitor in SwiftUI and update some UI or, you know, keep a keep how, whatever tabs on it you would like uh, in an easy way without having to subscribe to all those different uh, notifications. Um, and it doesn't come with any pre-built UI, as I believe it shouldn't. I think that's that's something that you should, you know, each application should determine how to um, uh, surface this information if they choose to. Uh, but it does kind of tame all those notifications and give you uh, give you a nice way to just take a look at what's happening with your sync state. Um, it's got a great readme file. It's, um, uh, it's actually been in development for a couple of years, but I've not come across it uh, before. Nice. Yeah, I mean that that's super hard to test. Actually, as you were saying it, I realized I I did not test the macro testing package. So there you go. It's it's oh, immediately. See, see, I knew it wasn't. <laughs> I, I I knew your 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 virtue wasn't as uh, wasn't as complete as you claimed. But snapshot testing, I have I've tried. <laughs> well, I've we've all used snapshot testing. Oh, right, so. we all have. <laughs> <laughs> Right. My second pick is called Lighter by Helge Hess. Um, and this is a really interesting package. It's not new. I just, uh, I know, I've known about it for a while, but there was a uh, release um, in the last week or, or t uh, last couple of weeks. And this is the package I I was um, 
alluding to earlier when I said uh, I was curious about how it's actually implemented. So Lighter is a very interesting SQLite database access package. And this is probably an area where there are quite a few candidates in the package index that are that is well serviced. Um, it's a rich field. Like for instance, there's GRDB by Gwendolyn Rue. That's probably the most widely known and used representative of the package of a, a SQLite database access package. But Lighter is really interesting in its approach and its its use case effectively. It is a, a package that source generates SQLite library bindings. Um, and it can do that in two ways. One is just straight up um, a layer that directly interfaces with the C library. So it's dependency free what you get out of it. Mm-hmm. And the other one is a it generates an additional layer on top, which is a lighter layer. So it gives you a, a nicer high level API to talk to your database. But what's really interesting is the, so the marketing, <laughs> if, if I can call it that, of the packages, it's it's really, really fast. And uh, it, it has a um, uh, performance test suite where it, it calls some numbers. Uh, so that that um, are quite remarkable. So in in some of the tests, it's six times faster than GRDB, um, and it's three times faster than GRDB if GRDB GRDB is sort of manually tweaked, effectively by avoiding codable, um, which is apparently a very right um, big price to pay there. So it it is quite fast in the tests that that Helge is running, but I was really curious about some of the things he's doing in his examples because he has um, an example how you filter on on uh, a query. So you know, as you can imagine, you you run a database, get me all the records from a table, and filter. You know, like a typical where clause. But it's written like a Swift filter with a closure. You know, you have, uh-huh. for instance, I loaded up a. Um, music like there's a Chinook, I think it's it's called a test SQLite database that you can download, which has sample data in it and has tracks like music tracks in it. And you do db.tracks.filter and then you pass in a closure where you can apply a, a filter on, on the tracks uh, individually, right? You do $0. Dot, I don't know, length, like the track length, track length, and then I queried for all the tracks that are longer than 300 seconds. And that runs, I mean, obviously with the number of tracks in it, I wasn't able to tell if it's fast or or anything, but I did actually check how it's implemented. And that was really interesting because what it does, effectively it binds the, the closure as a C function pointer into to the, to the SQLite library. So the library actually runs your closure directly, like as a function in, inside the database. You know, mm-hmm. it's as if in a Postgres database, you had shipped your code as an extension on, and then called into it, you know, you had all this done ahead of time and then you were calling into it. It can actually do that with straight up Swift code. And I was really surprised that that works. Um, I mean, obviously there's some unsafe pointer stuff going on to make that work, but that explains how that interface works and, and the, you know, how the claims can be made that this works without having to translate all sorts of variants of Swift code into where clauses, right? That's not happening. It's actually just executing the predicate directly on in in C in the library, and and that's remarkable. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's a really interesting package. I tried it out with the Chinook database. Works as advertised. It it code generates. Uh, so there's a 
build plugin that comes with it that auto generates um, your database access layer. You, you give it an input database and it looks at the schema and, and pulls out all the stuff. And that worked fine for that database. Well, it, it worked fine, actually. I, that's that's the, the thing I pointed out earlier. There was a, an, a formatting issue in the underlying database and that broke the generated code and Helga fixed that really quick. And that's that's the one thing I had in my notes when you adopt that sort of library that generates code. You are, There's a slightly bigger risk, you know, that, that things might not go 100% if the code generation doesn't work, right? So yeah, mm -hmm. you have a bit of an extra risk there in your dependency. On the other hand, if you don't regenerate right, you, what you already have is going to keep working. So at least there's some some safety there, but it's something to bear in mind um, for packages like this. But I believe if you need a, a really fast um, SQLite database access and you don't want to deal with, um, you know, the, the C aspects of the SQLite database, which is yeah. a database library, which is probably not something you want to be doing, um, this looks like a really gr great option. That's great. Um, and I like how in the description of the package, it, it ends with dependency free. So it says yeah. Swift APIs for SQLite type safe down to the schema, very, very fast dependency free. I think, you know, the fact that it's it's made it into the description of the package is, is obviously <laughs> that's how important um, Helga is uh, taking it there. Although I would argue it does have a dependency on, on SQLite. SQLite. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think we'll forgive him. Well, on on macOS and iOS and everywhere, the library's there. That's probably only on Linux where you. So then we get into yeah. defining how you, how do you define a dependency? Yeah. <laughs> What's a dependency? But let's not go down that route. So. It depends. <laughs> uh, instead. Instead, we'll go back to my uh, unresearched, untested. Uh, you got really got to have um, that one, aren't you? <laughs> Uh, well, I was going to say, actually, this one, I haven't tested this version of it, but I have used this package in the past. Um, it is shipping in uh, the iOS Dev Jobs uh, app, which um, which uses um, SwiftUI Introspect by um, David Roman. And I have a feeling we've talked about this package on the podcast once before, right at the very beginning. Um, because I think I just started, I just finished using it in the app when we were uh, looking for packages to uh, to talk about. Uh, and I think I talked about it then, but I, I'm going to mention it deliberately again, because it's just hit a 1.0 uh, milestone, which is always worth celebrating, especially for, for a package that um, uh, that is so good like this. What it does is it allows you to get at the underlying UI kit or app kit controls underneath a Swift UI uh, uh, view in a safe way so that you can, um, if there is something that the Swift UI view doesn't quite do, it means you don't have to completely throw that Swift UI view away. You can, if it is based on a UI kit or app kit control behind the scenes, you can get access to that modify whatever properties call whatever methods you would like to on that object and it does it in a safe way so that if the underlying implementation of swift ui changes it does not crash your application it just doesn't set those properties now of course <clears throat> if you do something in that code that you then 100 percent rely on later that's your responsibility to to make sure that if that code suddenly goes away your application should, should still at least work um but uh this is 
a really great library for filling in those little gaps. Um, and those gaps are getting less and less every year. Uh, there will be a happy day, I'm, and I'm sure David will uh, agree with me that it will be a happy day when he can say, this library is no longer necessary. Uh, and there will definitely come that point. Um, one of the things that I liked that has been added since I used the package, um, which is a an opt-in, out by default to new versions. So when you introspect something, you're let's say you're looking for a scroll view inside the Swift UI scroll uh, view, um, you now have to say, I'm looking for it on iOS version 13, 14, 15, 16. And then if a uh, version 17 comes like it comes out like it just did, um, you would have to manually opt in. You could say, like, I've tested this on the new version. I've checked it. I'm going to add that additional case so that um, so that it enables my introspection on the new platform. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a great library. It supports. There's a huge list of um, controls that it supports. Everything from page controls to scroll views to steppers to tables to uh, all the different lists and grids and things like that. It supports an, an enormous amount of the um, the, the Swift UI. Uh, API. Uh, it's been around for a long time. It's been around for three years now, which I think is pretty much as long as SwiftUI has been around. Wasn't SwiftUI's first year 2019, was it? I, I think so, yeah. Isn't it SwiftUI 3 yeah, I think so. on or something? Well, if it's 2019, wouldn't it be 4? I don't so, know. So, yeah, we, we, maybe it was a few months after SwiftUI uh, first um, okay. uh, showed up, but it's certainly been around for the for the vast majority of SwiftUI's lifetime. Um, and I can recommend this package because I have used it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and with that, I think uh, we'll call it uh, another episode. Uh, and we will be back with uh, some more showcase packages uh, next week and more news from the Swift Package Index. So uh, we will speak to you in two weeks. See you in two weeks. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye.